has taken a human form. But he has so much to learn about being human. Ah! Ah! He thought he was an invited guest, but he wasn't. He has only three days to find his mother's ship. Three days to live and learn if we let him. John Carpenter's Starman, the science fiction love story. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Reconcinimation. I'm your host, John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brett Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're checking out how they hold up today. And another exciting episode here. We are returning to the JCCU. That's right. The John Carpenter Cinematic Universe with a look back at Starman. Starman. Yeah, Starman. Super exciting. It is. Every and time I, you say JCCU, though, I just feel like I'm supposed to be going to my friend's Jewish community center. So <laughs> oh, it throws me for a loop a little bit, but I love it. The JCC and the JCCU are both awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm, where I come from, I think it's a Jesuit community center. So, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, can we, maybe we can combine all those things. The, yeah. the JJCCs, Jewish and Jesuits, <laughs> Jew, Jewish and Jesuits uh, Community Center of America. <laughs> well, uh, in order to do this, we needed yet another super special guest to return to the show. Uh, we're calling back our resident carpenter aficionado. It's Blake Fischera from Scored to Death and Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Thank hey. you. Brian. <laughs> Welcome always back, happy, sir. always happy to be here. Yes, and he's here. Good to see you again. Thank you, always sir. up for talking carpenter. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you're you're an expert. So anytime we talk carpenter now, uh, we feel like we need to have your your presence. So I I don't know if I'm an expert. There's a lot of experts now. I'm... <laughs> you're amongst them. You're amongst them. <laughs> I'm. You're the elite. You're yeah. our expert. There's a and there's so much love of John Carpenter. You know, I know we brought it up before, but it's it's been really fascinating over I don't know the last ten years, maybe a little bit more of you know this huge wave of this rediscovery of a lot of his movies, and you know definitely a lot of you know filmmakers who've come up in the business and are, and are now at a point of making their own films, whether they're studio people or directors or writers that were heavily influenced, you know, a lot of them from our generation, heavily influenced by your Halloweens and your Escape from New York's and your things and big troubles. And um, it's really, I think it's just awesome that he's gotten so much love over the last handful of years, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's probably more popular now than he ever was. I mean, yeah. especially right. since he started doing the, the music stuff. But um, the internet kind of changed how everybody watches movies, learns about movies, communicates with others about movies. And it is very strange to be like our age and then go on social media and realize that like, I don't know, we're not special anymore. 
<laughs> you know, like all the it, stuff it, that we were the only people that loved it, or yeah. you only knew like a handful of other people that loved it. Something that we bonded with like our best friends over. Yeah. Because it was us against the world. Now it's like everybody seems to love it. I remember just when more I had pockets of your people that you didn't that that we didn't know about until I the end. Now I know it just because uh, those fans that's regional, right? It's in your area. It's where you grew up and like pre-internet yeah. and all that stuff. And then like, oh, maybe there's like a, a a little con that's happening at the Holiday Inn, and someone's gonna be there. And it's like the local group, the local fans will go. But those local fans are in every region. So, you know, you were just no one had a, a, the ability to talk to each other for a long yeah. time. But, yeah. but it also made the ability to talk to each other online is that's true. But it also just made things easier to access to. So sure. where like, you know, discovering like Italian horror movies in the in the mid to late 90s was like, you know, a uh, archaeological dig. Yeah, it's a right. It was a rite of passage for uh, zombie fans <laughs> through video stores and conventions yeah. and stuff like that. Now it's like everything's at everybody's fingertips. So it's just like it's just it, everything's available now too, which is the other part of it. Um, not just finding the other people that love it, but now it's for the people that are being introduced to it. It's so much easier to access. So it's just like I feel like. It's just like the that community just grows faster and bigger than ever before. Yeah, it's easier to access in... everything except cocoon. That's all. <laughs> That's the hardest one. <laughs> That's the most Still, tricky one. What the hell? The uh, so I tricky. remember. I remember in high school when I was really into my laserdisc collection, and I got Escape from New York on laserdisc, and it had you know the commentary, but also the you know a couple of those deleted scenes, and it was like. A gold mine. No, none of my friends had even seen Escape from New York, period, and were so fascinated with it. And it was like in my little town, uh, Somers in New York, like nobody, nobody knew about John Carpenter. A couple people had seen the thing. They knew about Big Trouble, but that was it, you know, and, and of course, Halloween. But some of the other stuff, it was like I felt like I was showing all of these people for the first time. And now it's so hard to find that anymore. For anybody who's listening, don't be fooled. John's still really into his laserdisc collection. Let's not just this not, is true. Was it let's, just in high school? Let's stop pretending. Yeah, <laughs> come on, come on. Can I guy. talk about the Godfather saga again? Do I need to get into that? <laughs> <laughs> They're good. The quality's still good. Um, <laughs> but uh, Starman was a movie that I really never saw. Um, I I remember glimpses of it. I remember shots of the the end, you know, the end sequence and the, those colorful, the blue and the red lighting. And I remember that, but I, I used to mix it up with uh, another Charles Martin Smith movie, Never Cry Wolf. I don't know why. Maybe they came out, maybe I kind of saw both around the same time when I was a kid, <laughs> but... Uh, I used to confuse the two, <laughs> so. Huh. But so this was like this was I'm this is basically a first time watch for me. Huh. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what about you guys, right. Blake? What was the first time you got turned on to Starman? I mean, it was probably a new release on video. You know, I uh, my parents were divorced. And my dad had this crazy thing that you would go to Rite Aid and rent these tapes <laughs> and yes. then uh, go home and you could watch them. Um, 
and that's what? how I saw. I'm sure. Did I did I talk Christine with you guys? Yes, I can't remember. Yeah. That yeah, I probably you, yeah. told the story about renting Christine. Um, my dad is like very much not a horror fan now, but he does not realize that he was responsible for largely responsible for my love of things like the thing and Christine and, and all that stuff. But I remember watching it as a, like as a kid. So we're, we must've been like 85. And cause I remember just like, not like one being like mesmerized by like the, the, like Jeff Bridges becoming Jeff Bridges, the Dick Smith special effects, mm -hmm. not fully understand what understanding what was happening. Cause I was, I don't know, seven, <laughs> six <laughs> or seven. Yeah. Um, so I, I always remembered it because of that. And uh, I always remembered the music. And then when I was in high school, um, we had a, like a photography classes and the guy who taught the photography classes was also also taught like a video production class, like a movie class. And he decided not to do it one year. So they brought in this teacher from one of the junior highs who was very into movies to come in and teach it. And it was a lot of like watching movies. And, and I don't know, I don't know if other high schools had this kind of thing, but we luck luckily we did. And but for the most part, it was people that were just trying to, you know, get grades for watching movies. But I by that point, I was very me and my friends made movies on weekends and uh, we had access to like a VHS to VHS editing deck in wow. at school. And uh, and uh, what's I forget what the name of the computer was with the transitions. And um, so she was showing us all this stuff, which. I didn't mind watching. I, I hadn't seen a lot of it. Like she was showing us like Fellini movies and wow. stuff, but like <laughs> my class just wasn't having it. Just was not into it at all. And I don't remember how it came about, but she finally just got like fed up with it. And she, she's like, I'm going to bring in my, the list of movies I have and you guys are going to look through it and we'll just watch whatever the hell you want. Like she was just like, she had given up. So she brought in like this, like, you know, booklet of printed out sheets with a list of movies. She had them all like listed and she passed it around class. And somehow the movie that the class settled on was Starman. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know why. Wow. How? Uh, I remember even at the time thinking that was really strange <laughs> that like this was this was the the, the movie that like. The majority of the class settled on. Did they think it was going to be like about something else, like more of a like an action sci-fi kind of thing? Or I have no idea. I have no idea what they were thinking and why we. <laughs> I was certainly glad for it. Yeah. So I watched it then in class. The other, like the flip side of that, like the the other story from that class was, I you know by the, it was the nineties. We were coming off of like the. Tarantino's and whatnot mm -hmm. coming off of Goodfellas. And so I was like, somehow I said, I brought up like we could, I, and the class was like, sure, let's watch Raging Bull. So we watched Raging Bull in class over like several days. And uh, one of the, the day with like, kind of like the quote unquote, like sex scene in that movie, 
with Kathy Moriarty and Robert Denner, we had a substitute teacher. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and she was like, "I we can't. I'm turning this off. We can't watch it." And if you, I thought we we're gonna have like Lord of the Flies situation, like <laughs> the class just like this is what we're supposed to watch. They're just like good girls like screaming <laughs> at the substitute teacher. <laughs> but those are the two stories I remember from from that class. But Starman, yeah, and that was that was my second viewing of Starman. And then as I started to get into Carpenter, you know, I, I watched it again. A few years ago, um, Brooklyn Academy of Music did a whole full, they have also have a movie theater there. They did a full John Carpenter retrospective, showed all his movies. And uh, I knew I couldn't go see them all, and nor did I really want to, because I, I wanted to see stuff that was being shown on 35 and not mm -hmm. digital and all that stuff. But the three movies I decided that, that I had to see were... Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, and Starman. And uh, so those, and so that was probably the last time I watched it, which was probably like 2016 or 17. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I found it incredibly moving now, yeah. uh, even more so than I probably did uh, in previous viewings. And then I watched it today. So. That's my complete history of Starman. I'll uh, see you guys wow. later. <laughs> that's that's a wrap. <laughs> All right, thanks for swinging by. Uh, no, that's um, awesome. Oh, I've seen this a couple times. Yeah, I saw this in the theaters uh, back in the day. It was one of my one of my theater uh, uh, experiences. This one is. I love this movie. It's uh, you know I, I forget about it a lot. I I just it like doesn't get a lot of the same uh kind of credit is some of the other carpenter movies or some of the other kind of like sci-fi movies of of the age you know i guess but for me this is like squarely lives like in a kind of a a, a self-imagined franchise of films that starts with starman and then the sequel is the last starfighter uh and then and then the the third movie and this is enemy mine which if, if you guys haven't seen that, uh, we should talk about it sometime, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love this movie. It's great. I, I just don't watch it as often as I'd like. I, I saw it in the theater. I saw it a handful of times when I was a kid and then sort of kind of forgot about it a little bit. And, and every so often, um, I I'll, I'll remember it. Maybe I'll watch it again, but I, I probably haven't seen this in yeah, 15, 20 years. Wow. Uh, is the last time is the last time I saw it. But mm -hmm. um and I don't know, you know, seeing it this time, like I so I've I've done a lot of reflecting in my life and uh, recently, and I've gone through and recounted like uh, you know, like what movies are the movies that influenced me so much as a child that got me to want to pursue this crazy career and do what I do. And E.T. is definitely, uh, if not the top one in that in on that list, uh, it's at the very top. And so it wasn't until this viewing of Starman this time that I really pieced together <laughs> how many parallels there are between Starman and, and E.T. But I just watched E.T. two weeks ago uh, while playing the board game with my daughter. We were watching the movie at the same time, because that's what kind of dorks we are. And so we did that and then just watched Starman. And I'm like, 
I'm like making connections for things that aren't even really connections, but I'm like, nope, that's <laughs> definitely like ET's glowing heart when they're driving through on the on the double wide and the home window is glowing. I'm like, yeah, that's totally uh <laughs> symbolic, you know, but it's like there are so many parallels that I that I found in this one that that kind of uh surprised me. But yeah, Starman's great. Uh I'm glad that we're doing it because I hadn't seen it in a while and I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Nice. Yeah, David, first time watch, second time watch, or seventh time watch? What if I told you I've seen it a hundred times? What <laughs> I would love I'd to be hear surprised. that. You continue to assume I've only seen movies the first time, uh, or maybe second. But, but you know, let's keep it open that anything is possible here. Now, all that said, first time was two days ago. And, <laughs> and boy, oh boy, what a journey it was. <laughs> uh well and you know the funny thing is i never yeah i didn't see it in the theater or whatever but i'm uh, <laughs> i uh, for years and years and years i i confuse starman with uh soul man the oh, thomas ouch. c how see, see thomas I see, Howell I see the similarity where he puts on blackface to get into college or something uh and i thought these were the same movie <laughs> But they're not. Apparently. What if they were though? What if they were? Well, I was half. I was half hoping that would be the the B subplot. You know, like both, both directed by horror movie directors. So, yes. Right. So yeah, Steve Miner directed Soul Man. So you know, listen, like these are basically the same movie to me uh, in my head. But I didn't see much of Soul Man either. So, uh, but yeah, no, this was the first time to see it through and 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 get to really know a. I, I don't know an, a young Jeff Bridges enough, so um, to add this to to that to to get to know his earlier career was uh, you know a feast. Yeah, you don't see a lot of uh, airplay for a lot of the early Jeff Bridges stuff. I mean, last picture shows, last picture show, but uh, you know, against all odds, and you know, the morning after, and like those kind of early '80s and late '70s things, you don't really see very often, but. Um, you know, it's really like Lebowski and afterwards that that's the Jeff Bridges that we know and yeah, is the popular he, one. He became a quite an icon with Lebowski and beyond. So, yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, it's a uh, it's, it's it's Jeff Bridges, man. Yeah. You know, he's he's getting sucked into video games and, uh, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, making well, I was, was going to say, yeah, Tron, Tron, there's there's quite a following. <laughs> there's Tron, but, yep. Tron's a big, <laughs> for his yeah. early his early 80s stuff. But, yeah. but beyond that, like you're right, it's not there's not a whole lot uh, that sticks out. And, and see, I, sorry, I was going to say looking looking through his credits, though, like earlier in his career, like seeing, you know, like, uh, Nadine, like I remember when that came out, Tucker, when that came out, Jagged Edge, like those were all pretty popular for the time, but they don't get a lot of talk, you know, like none of those, they don't have the staying power of a, of a lot of the, the later stuff. Yeah. Like Lebowski and things yeah. like that. Well, it's like you got to have a movie that's embraced by like film schools, right? That's going to like, that's where the, those are the movies that get shoved on the incoming, at least filmmaking community. And and really a, a lot of those aren't, I, not I, that they're bad movies, but a guy, a guy I used to be friends with, uh, used to work in a, like the program department of a movie theater in Westchester that was like a nonprofit. So they showed a lot of art films and do did like film retrospectives. And they did like a, they did a Jeff Bridges retrospective and uh, they wanted him to come 
you know, do a Q and A and and all that. So they sent him the list of movies that they were going to show, and he's like, uh, "You're not showing Starman." And they, and they said, no, no, we're not showing Starman. He's like, well, I'm not coming. We're not going to show Starman. <laughs> no shit. Nice. That's great. So they ended up, they couldn't get like a print of it. They ended up showing, I, th- I think they showed it like on VHS or Ooh. like DVD oh, wow. or something. But oh, wow. he, like his demand Gritty. was, I'm not going to come unless you're going to go show, unless you show Starman. I mean, I think you have to. It's like that's the movie he got an Oscar nomination for, and he's so incredible in it. I mean, both of them. We'll we'll come back to Karen Allen, but um, they're both like he's so great in it. And why would you? Why wouldn't you show that movie? If you ever watch like the old episodes of the Inside the Actor Studio show, and every time they get to a movie with any actor being interviewed they get to a movie that they were in with Jeff Bridges. They always say, I learned more about acting from working with Jeff Bridges than I did like anywhere <laughs> else. Like Robin Williams said it for the Fisher yeah, King. Like the Fisher King. Yep. <laughs> it was like every, it became like this motif. Every time they got to like a Jeff Bridges movie, the person would be like, I learned more about the craft from working with Jeff Bridges. Wow. <laughs> As a kid too, like I, Pre Lebowski, I was not into Jeff Bridges. There was something about him that, like, I just automatically assumed all his movies were going to be boring. I, really? I don't know why I thought that, but just as like a teenager, really. And so I stayed away from everything, I think, except Tron, maybe King Kong, um, until you didn't see like Blown Away or Fisher King or nope, nope. I got, nope. I got mad love for White Squall. Like, you didn't. None of these? None of those? <laughs> nope. Missed all of them. I'm like, Bridges? Nope. I'm out. And then Lebowski Whoa. hit, and I did a 180. And uh... well, You want to hear something like really crazy. My <laughs> best friend in high school could not stand Kurt Russell. Really? Ooh. <laughs> that's that. That's like gut right. punch right there. This is, where, this, okay. is, this is where the color bars come up. And like, okay. We have uh, standby. I need, we're gonna, a minute. I need we, need to, we need to dox this person and then, uh, you know, send some threatening things. I haven't talked to him since high school, so I don't know where he stands on. Good for you. That's the right move. Good, that's that was, exactly that was why you, you broke up. That's, that's right. the right move. We're not talking. Yeah. Wow. That's a bold stance, but. Maybe the hair was too intimidating. It That's was too much. It was. He saw Tango and cash. It That'll get like, you. I can't handle this. <laughs> that hair is too big, and that's it. Um, but Starman, you know, Starman. I think of all the Carpenter movies um, from, you know, his prime era. Starman doesn't get a lot of play either. You know, the people that have seen it, see, everyone seems to love it, but. It doesn't come up as often as, you know, your your big troubles and your Halloween things, Escape from New York's. Um, even They Live, I think, gets a, a more uh, more love than Starman does. But Starman is, it was so fascinating to me because I'm watching. I'm like, in a way, this this might be like almost my favorite Carpenter movie now. Like I love this movie because it feels it feels so. I don't know. It feels so there's some genuine stuff rooted in it with specifically with Karen Allen and, and dealing with a, a real thing that like grief and loss. And we all go through that. And that opening scene of her or not the opening scene, but the first time we see her where she's watching those old film reels, like 
you can, I felt like you could really feel her pain. And that's something that you don't always have in the other Carpenter movies, just because they're not set in reality like that, that they're just about, you know, other things, whether it's aliens or a killer or whatever, or it's fun, like big trouble, you know? Um, so I don't know, that one just really had an impact on me this time. Yeah, this one is sci-fi, which is similar to a lot of like or fantasy like that uh, Carpenter's done in the past, but it's rooted in human emotion, which is like not something you get a lot of in in some of his his other ones. This is much deeper uh, than than that, you know. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, and the performances are powerful, you know, like both are mm-hmm. are Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges are both really really good in this. Um, and you know, like you're along for the ride, kind of seeing her dealing with her loss and, and him learning about, you know, like human emotion and, and empathy and things like that. And it, it, it has a real power to it that, that kind of grabs you and, and, and keeps you kind of, uh, you know, uh, locked in. I think, you know, what we lose sight of is that I don't think Carpenter ever really set out to be like a horror filmmaker. And I don't necessarily think he is, in my in my opinion. I mean, sure, like the movies he's most famous for are, but, you know, his, he's got action movies and science fiction movies. I don't think horror is really his thing. I think, right. he, you know, even Halloween was was a job for hire. Yeah. You know? like yeah. He was yeah. hired to make a movie about a killer and babysitters. And so he delivered that when I, um, I know his son Cody a little bit and talking to Cody, I asked Cody once what, like, what's your dad's Cody's his son. And I said, what's your dad's like guilty pleasure movies. And he's like, well, he's like independent. (laughs) He's anytime independence day. He'll watch independence. Day. Nice. (laughs) That's hilarious. Which makes sense when the second part of the second answer is that like any like science 50 science fiction movie, like that's really where like his heart is, is like 50 sci-fi. And then, you know, you you see some of that in, in they live and Prince of darkness is very much like his ode to equator, the equator mass movies. Well, and the, the thing and the, and the thing, which he, you know, it's his version is, very much rooted in horror, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was obsessed with Howard Hawks. So the thing was big thing for him to do. And uh, so, I mean, I think in that way, Starman very much fits into like where I think like his, his heart is, but he's also like, just like a classic filmmaker. I think even in, in his own head, you know, like his heroes in filmmaking were guys like Howard Hawks and John Ford and, you know, it, and so I think like doing a romantic comedy, love story, a road movie, but also, you know, being able to put it. I don't even know if he would have cared whether it was an alien, was a science fiction movie or not. I think he just he was given an opportunity and he wanted to take it. And the fact that it was science fiction probably made it seem like a, a a not so crazy idea to have him do it mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> on paper um 
and again, he he very much considers it a work for hire, but it's a movie. It's one of the movies that he has said that he's most proud of. Um, and so I think he got to, you know, deal with a lot of different kinds of movies that he kind of grew up loving or where his heart is. He's also very much a romantic, which you don't really get yeah. <laughs> from yeah. anything. Um, every once in a while, I've seen him interviewed where it's like him and his wife, Sandy King, who he met uh, doing this movie. Yeah, she was a script he, supervisor, right? On this, on one? this and now yeah. she's, and now she's a producer. And uh, he's very like lovey dovey with her. You can just tell that he's like, in and the other thing, is if you read, I, and I suggest this to any John Carpenter fan, is to read Adrian Barbeau's autobiography, um, because there's several chapters about Carpenter because she was married to him, and uh, the way she talks about him in that movie is like a, I mean, in that book is, it's this like total like romantic, head over heels in love guy so so i think it's not so far-fetched when you start to you, you chip away at things and you find these little in looks into more of what carpenter is as like a as a person and not a filmmaker that you do see that he is very much a romantic and um very much able to fall in love in like clearly like really like intense ways and, and like not afraid to show it, you know, in a way that makes well, this like his perfect movie. Yeah. Kind of right. in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's as we continue to do more Carpenter movies, that's where I find myself is like, he likes telling stories of like human perseverance in a sense, but not like against insurmountable odds, but it's a sort of like, humanity is always at a battle at war with itself in terms of like it's like your emotions right and like where where you fall with things and like are you are you kind of are you going to be the good guy or are you going to be the bad guy and there's a lot of gray area but but ultimately where's your morality where's your ethics taking you and um i think he's tech i think with everything he's more or less optimistic like but he 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 in all of these different types of movies, whether it's like a straight up horror slasher or this romantic sort of like fish out of water or, uh, you know, or just fighting evil or fighting the bad guy. Like there's an optimism to the whole thing. And, uh, like, so it's like, he can do all of these kinds of different movies. You wouldn't necessarily know the uninitiated wouldn't know that the guy who did Starman did Halloween. Like, you know, like yeah. more, it just, it wouldn't like, really? <laughs> well, and th but, this is, Oh God, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. I, no, I, so I, I think it's, it's, it's like he gets to continue to explore his themes of humanity. And I think that's like what most directors are, you know, who have a story to tell. That's what you're doing, right? You're exploring your own humanity or what you would view of a global humanity. And, um, and you do it in your own way it's like christopher nolan like his his thesis statements of all of his films are very basic but they're so great that the films themselves are so grandiose in scope and scale because of budget and what you can do and visual effects but like carpenter was always doing the same thing and and countless directors are doing that same thing that like exploration of humanity and 
I think it's great to to be able to like move out of like he doesn't live in one specific genre, I don't think. Right. And you mentioned you know optimism. This is this is one of his most optimistic movies. I mean, this has, and I mean it's a bittersweet, but it is a it is sort of a, a version of a happy ending, and it's it's the maybe the maybe the only movie i don't know about memoirs of Inv- invisible man i haven't seen that it's either, lovely but... <laughs> it's a lovely lovely story but the last shot so many of his films have that sort of like a really memorable last shot and a lot of it is like leaning towards like doom is still coming something bad is about to happen you know or is still happening you know michael myers is still on the loose and you know the the ending of they live the ending of escape from new york and the famous ending for the thing but this one is like just a beautiful shot of of karen allen like as she's just watching him and instead of a cut to a hard cut to black it's just slow dissolve and it's just a softer the whole movie is just a softer more gentle uh approach and it's it's it just felt so different like there's so much carpenter in it but yet it still felt so different to me right you know i know what we're we're deep into it already but but brent why don't you take us back why don't you rewind and take us back to 1984 december 84 and uh what was what was happening in the world back in december 84 oh you want to hear about 1984 john (laughs) I, I want to hear. You want me to tell you a couple things about 1984? <laughs> I can tell you about 1984, man. 1984. Let's see. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was uh, elected president for the second time. Hurrah for that, I guess, for some people. Mm-hmm. So, some people. Uh, Space shuttle Discovery uh, successfully completed its maiden voyage, which was pretty awesome. And then we've talked about this a couple different times, but the. Iran Contra affair was kind of another big news article, but that was mostly going to unfold later, earlier in 1985. But mm-hmm. the initial kind of kind of breaking stories started happening in late 84. So, uh, but let's see. Top three songs of the year were When Doves Cry by Prince, Like a Virgin by Madonna, and Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go by Wham. Uh, in the NFL, the, the 49ers won the Super Bowl, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series, Celtics won the NBA championship, and the Edmonton Oilers won the Stanley Cup. And there were a ton of great movies in 84. 84 is a uh, good year. It's not 82, but it's... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Look, I know 82, everybody's all gooey for 82, but man, 84, you got... Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, Karate Kid, Splash, Police Academy, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Terminator. You can just stop at Police Academy. Never Ending (laughs) Story, Red Dawn, The Natural. Like, come on, dude. Like, there's like this list goes on forever. Yeah. That is not all the movies. There are hundreds of movies that came out that year that are equally just as awesome (laughs) as those that I just listed. So, I'm sticking with 84 as po- quite possibly uh, the best year in film history. All right. I got to vote uh, for 84. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. 84. Pretty impressed. Pretty impressed. It also, Hosted. it also marks the last album that Van Halen did with David Lee Roth, which is Ex- right. Know, very true. <laughs> like <laughs> called this is... 1984. So <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. So many things happened in 84. George Orwell, 1984. Like, come on, you can't even, it's like, yeah. what are you going to do? All did right. David Lee Roth ever, did he ever reunite with them? He, he had did, to, right? Yeah, he did. Except yeah. for they wouldn't let Michael Anthony, the bass player, back for yeah. some reason. Eddie was mad that he had continued to play with Sammy Hagar mm. after they mm. kicked Sammy out. But yeah, you know, Michael Anthony's like, like, I need a job. <laughs> definitely, definitely no pettiness revolving yeah. around any of that. No, they brought in Wolfgang Van Halen to play yeah. bass. Um, that was in the two two thousands. I don't right. know what year it was, but yeah. Uh, I'm um, Dave. All right, David. Uh, why don't you for for those listening that maybe haven't actually seen Starman uh, recently? Why don't you can you give us a quick recap of it? Sure. Yeah. No. Written by Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon and Dean Reisner, and directed by John Carpenter. Starman follows the adventure of an out of this world alien. <laughs> Starman follows the adventure of an out of this world alien who befriends a young widow by taking the physical form of her deceased husband, Scott. Now they'll have to avoid shady government authorities and scientists in the road trip of a lifetime to get this alien to his pickup point so he can finally go home. And along the way, the Starman learns from Jenny Hayden about the unique things that make life on Earth worth living. That's, bah, the, bah, that's bah. the movie. My favorite part of the movie actually is just the fact that Ted White is in is in it, <laughs> who also had Friday the 13th, the final chapter in 1984. So, and I think Romancing, is Romancing the Stone 84? It is 84. Yes. Yeah. So he had a trifecta. That's a big year. The year it of is. Ted White. <laughs> yes. There's never enough Ted White. Never. Nope. nope. Oh, all right. So, okay. So you mentioned um, Bruce Evans and, and Reynold Gideon developing the script. And it's, it's kind of tough that they end up getting sole credit writing credit for the movie because it's my understanding that dean reisner really injected a lot of the you know what we know and love about starman was was all from him but blake yeah, is that is that kind of your recollection yeah i mean i know carpenter said that like a lot of the heart that's in the movie comes from him and he did something like nine drafts of it yeah Oof. with like and... six different directors supposedly yeah. Or a bunch of different directors. So. But ultimately, the Writers Guild deemed that he didn't add enough to it. To <laughs> Right. So he didn't get any credit at all? Or... No, no, no screen so. credit. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, and, and he was and he was a big writer at the time. And it's it's kind of a shame. But yeah, this this was in development for like five or six years and was one of those that just kind of sat there in kind of development hell at at, uh, at Columbia for quite a while. And they were also developing uh, Steven Spielberg's Night Skies, which may be familiar to some of you, Brent. You remember AKA which one? E.T., the extraterrestrial. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that one. So developing both at the same time and, and Columbia ends up dropping Night Skies and sticks with Starman, which... In the long run, you know, I mean, Starman is, is we love it and it's a great film. I wonder if they, they regretted it at the time they had to. I don't know. Right. Like is, is E.T. E.T. without Spiel, you know, like every, like. Well, I think, I feel like Spielberg was, was still attached 
to it. I mean, it was his, it was his project, but uh, they just would have been real. Yeah, I don't know. They would have, it they may, would have gotten all that money. Yeah. But it may not have been ET. I think. What yeah. It yeah. Might have, it might have stayed yeah. night skies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not as catchy of a title, you know? <laughs> no, it um, seems, seems a little more superficial. Yeah. Nice. Well, you always need like any, any of these great films, like you need that right um, concoction of creativity of the director and the studio who's either allowing them to, to make their movie or fighting against them, which is also helping them make that movie, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, the right group of people making it. So it, it all, it all worked out for, for uh, Mr. Yeah. Spielberg. Need the right ingredients. Yeah. Um. A lot of different directors, like at one point, attached to to this movie: uh, Tony Scott, Adrian Lin, John Badham, Peter Hyams. All those guys are touching on it and involved in some capacity before it ends up back with Carpenter. I don't know what movie, like any of those directors, like it would have been a very different film in in their hands. Agreed. Tony's- I was just trying to think of that list, and I'm like, is, are any would any of those directors have come close to what we? what we got and uh the answer is no i don't think well, it's so. also because you have to take into account that you know like each one of those directors and however many directors like they each like dean reisner did like new drafts including like the stuff that carpenter wanted you know like mm-hmm. he was changing the movie for every you know director um i think it's also worth noting that like it was you know it was picked it was like purchased by uh, Michael Douglas in like the mid to late seventies. Yeah, that's yeah. like how it got like off the ground. Um, but yeah, of course. I mean, even if they all would have made a different movie, even if it was the same script. But I mean, there's everything points to the fact that each one of them had like a different. If they even got far enough, yeah, to to actually like be actually working on it and, and not just be like in the running and with discussions. It, you know, the script changed so many times that, you know, yeah, obviously they all, it, it would have been a very different movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think like Tony Scott at the time is doing, you know, just coming off The Hunger, which is, I just watched that for the first time last year. And, you know, that's a very different kind of Tony Scott than the Top Gun and everything after that version of Tony right. Scott. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of movie he would have made here. Um you know, Peter Hyams was like, was very into the sci-fi kind of aspect of it. So really could have changed it and, and de-emphasized the love story and made it much more about the, you know, the government chasing down the, the alien kind of aspect of it. But Carpenter comes in and is, he's really the one that emphasizes the love story and the road trip, you know, setting of it, I think mostly comes from him. Yeah. There was also, I don't know under whose uh, authority, but apparently there, there even what there was a draft at one point where the Starman flew. Oh no! <laughs> like Superman. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so I don't know what's what story that was, but apparently there was even a draft where the, that happened. So it clearly went through many different uh, uh, into different directions and and in different versions but yeah definitely carpenter i think he well you know it's a weird aspect it's a weird time in carpenter's career he um 
He's coming off the thing, which damn near ruined his career. Which right. is just insane to think about from today, you know, that 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 movie could have gone over that badly. He takes yeah. he takes Christine because he just is afraid that if he doesn't make something right away, that he's not gonna get another chance to make something. Yeah. And then we get Starman and I mean, it's kind of it's lucky for him that Christine did fairly well, um, box office wise. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day and before there were these Blu-rays with special features and commentaries and the internet and people talking, there was always this story that Carpent that Carpenter's like agent or manager said, you know, like. You got to make a nice movie. Like you have to show people that <laughs> you're not this poor, not quote unquote pornographer of gore, which is yeah. what he was kind mm-hmm. of called when he made the thing. Like you have to make a nice one, something like you have to let people know that you're not like crazy. <laughs> and so like you have give to him, do like, a, give them some soft edges. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was always like what you heard as to why he did it. Now, I in kind of reading everything I have uh, for this episode, I couldn't find any. But I mean, he's not an open book, yeah, carpenter in general. So, I mean, who knows? It, it, but he was definitely in like a weird spot in his career, and so like, luckily, Christine did okay. He, for all intents and purposes, doesn't like that movie. It very much thinks of it as like a job. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, like Big Trouble didn't do very well after this one. But for this like weird moment in time, he's still willing to work with like a a studio. He's probably scared <laughs> that you know he can't afford to have another flop. Yeah. Um this this movie's it, crucial for him at, at that time. Yeah. And I mean, according to him, like he just got offered it. Like he didn't like Michael Douglas, like called him up and said, do you want to do it? And he read whatever they had. And he was like, yes, like I want to do something that's not a horror movie. I want to do something that's a road that that has the potential to be a road movie and be a love story. Um, Because he, like I was saying earlier, just has like other interests than horror movies. And, um, but also like, his son is born during production and he doesn't leave production to go be there mm-hmm. for the birth. It's also, I think kind of like the beginning of the end of his relationship with Adrian Barbeau. So it's mm-hmm. like, he's in a weird, when you read her book, he seems like th- this part of his career probably. And I think understandably so, like really is afraid and feels like a failure during their relationship. Cause mm. she's like coming off like a sitcom. Like, you know, she was on Maud. She was like kind of a big, like she was a bigger star than he was. Yeah. And, um, you know, she did things because of him. Like she did creep show because he's like, Oh, you should work with George Romero. And she did swamp thing. Cause you should work with Wes Craven. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do get the sense from, her book that like he is in constant like feels inferior 
in their relationship. Like mm. she's basically like the breadwinner and he's trying to make movies and he has this huge failure and uh, he's so afraid that he won't be back to work on Monday back wherever they're because they're not shooting in L.A. I think the reason why I start why like Prince of Darkness and L.A. and uh, they live because become such L.A. movies um, because I think he just wanted to be around for his because he had a son now and he didn't want to be off like in other places and not be around. Um, and for the most part was able to shoot like nine to five and be able to pick up his son from school and all that stuff. But at this point, I think he's just like in a really weird spot in his professional and also like his kind of personal life. And, and he comes back from this movie and, you know, according to her is kind of miserable. Like she expected that he'd be like fucking psych that he had a son and he was, but he was at the same time, like, I don't know, like just in a weird headspace. And then yeah. like a month later, just said like, look, I don't want to be married anymore. <laughs> you wow. know? So it was like a month after returning from shooting wow. this movie, he's just like, look, I don't want to be married. And he, I met somebody and though it's not romantic, we have a lot in common and it just made me realize. And I wonder if that was Sandy King. I don't know what their, I don't know like the trajectory of their, relationship because i know she basically then works on all his movies after mm -hmm. that so i don't know when that mm -hmm. becomes an item but so during starman he's certainly also in a very weird kind of like personal space and and headspace in his personal life um so it's just it's a very strange time for him um it's a strange time to be making a ro such a romantic <laughs> film yes yeah. as, as he's falling out of as, love with his as his romance is falling apart yeah shall i tell you what i find beautiful about you you are at your very best when things are worst yeah i mean as far as his career goes totally totally see that that he he's really it's really important to stabilize his career at this at this point if he does if he has another miss I mean, I guess the thing was such a such a disaster that that alone could have sunk him. And and thankfully, like Christine, kind of you know stopped that downward slide. And then now he's got to try and go back up, which uh, which you know he is able to do for the most part here. But um, and, and it's interesting that he didn't get scared off um, by ET. That ET comes out and that doesn't you know, shelve this whole entire project because it's got to be, you know, I think the studio wanted similarities to E.T., but also wanted to, you know, change it enough so it's not just like an E.T. imitation. And yeah. I think a lot of people would have really struggled with that. And uh, but he turned around and made an excellent, excellent film out of that. Well, I mean, I think the success of E.T. is what finally, like, put it over the you know, got it over the hump to get, to get made, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's funny. Cause you know, the, the story, which I don't necessarily believe, you know, you, you, the thing, things get said, especially in an internet uh, age. Wait, you don't believe the internet podcast <laughs> age things get said and then they just become truth. And it's like, you've always heard Carpenter say that, and when people write about it, 
the thing they say this which is that like the reason why the thing didn't do well is because et came out like a week before and everybody wanted to like wanted like happy aliens and carpenter was giving them so i don't buy that at, at yeah, all i don't know <laughs> i don't yeah. know why that became the truth <laughs> you know that everybody just takes uh takes on you know on its you know as true that's just it's a very weird notion that like that's the reason why that movie didn't do well um i do think that it is crazy could you imagine being in the cutting room like cutting together the thing and knowing what you have there and then get that reaction from you know viewers critics like it could have broken them like yeah. oh, it'd be so disheartening like you know you're making devastating what is probably going to be the best movie you've ever made <laughs> and nobody connects with that and even now you you know like people will say like but it grew now now they'll say it but it found its audience and he's like you know well what is good did it do me like yeah i like who gives a shit like yeah I needed them to like it then. Right. I don't care if they like it now. I mean, think about if if that had been the hit it should have been, where his career would have gone after that. Totally yeah. different trajectory. I just can't imagine like seeing what you made. I mean, even like every book, everybody's probably their worst is their worst critic, right? So like he probably didn't think it was as good as like, you know, people think of, about it now, but he had to know it was something special yeah. <laughs> in some way like how could you not like that it worked at the very least he knew it worked yeah right and the fact that like people didn't see it that way had to just like i can't imagine like how that could have screwed with like he i don't think he thinks of himself as an artist and i don't necessarily think a lot of people do um like i've always thought of him as more of like a craftsman but but he is and you know like artists are sensitive people mm -hmm. and like the fact that he came back from that at all is kind of amazing yeah and uh to then take a movie that like take then to sign on to starman which it, maybe he maybe he did starman because of it you know like it's a movie that starts with an alien like crash landing on this planet who takes a human form yeah the same <laughs> opening as the thing <laughs> it opens like the thing does you know, and it and it's about an alien who basically, for all intents and purposes, like just clones a, a existing characters and to, you know, be under in disguise. I mean, it, it's kind of it's like the parallel universe version. It's like mirror mirror version of yeah. <laughs> of the thing or the thing is the mirror mirror universe version of starman yeah and maybe it was part of his motivation was like okay well like you want a good f alien you want a good thing i'll give you a nice thing you know like i could do it yeah. it's the thing's cousin okay <laughs> but like it's so hollywood that like with his 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 filmography his resume his pedigree of what he's done it's like there's people with so much less than that that are given huge studio movies blockbusters like superhero movies or genre movies that are just like big budget things and it is almost like how did he not get the big big ones you know but it is you know it, it's all about those relationships and like where he is within the system and 
it's like who likes you best and what have you done for me lately and it's all those things so he's got he had to always been in the mix for some of the bigger things that ever came up but you know we don't that's why we don't have 1989's batman from john carpenter or something you know like just somehow i don't know i mean any you know it could have gone in so many different directions but it probably went more in the direction that he's always wanted i'm assuming for himself yeah well after big trouble in china he just decides that he doesn't want to work for the studios anymore he's just like yeah but that's it's not for him and he just he doesn't seem like a guy that probably played well with executives i can't no. see that happening <laughs> no, no like he talks about you know his working with michael douglas was the best relationship he ever had with a producer but that's because michael douglas he's like hired him and then at the end said okay it's good <laughs> yeah <laughs> see you at the yeah. premiere <laughs> you know who he's, he's had like one suggestion about like you might not want to some of this, all the scenes seem pretty complete. You might want to come in late on some of the scenes, like come yeah. in mid scene. Hmm. He's like, other than that, you know, you don't have to do it. And his other big suggestion was like, you should out, you should get Jack Nietzsche to score it. Right. And that was like, according to Carpenter, like the only feedback he got <laughs> from Michael Douglas the whole time was like, it's good. And you should get this guy to score it. <laughs> huh. It's well, sad for me. To, it's sad for me to think that he looks at his career as like a disappointment. Cause like I look, I mean, I don't know. I look at the movies that he's done and easily, you know, I think who wouldn't want that. Who wouldn't want this career? You know, like, well, yeah. I know. I mean, for, for me, I mean, just myself, like my own personal bubble, like four of his movies are in my top 25, like of all time. Right. It's like, that's crazy. Like no other director has that many movies in my top 25 and, and I'd be hard pressed to find any kind of list of like cult movies anywhere where he doesn't have five movies on that list that are like squarely in the top tier of, of like cult movies all time. And it's just like, I understand cult movies aren't like immediate success and, and things like that. But like, to be John Carpenter and think that he's like, you know, he he's, I mean, maybe he's not like this anymore, but like at a time, it sounds like, you know, it's a little bit of a pity party, you know, like just having a hard time with, with how things were going, but like, man, like that's shocking to me because like the stuff that he has done and the movies that he's put out there and even the lesser known ones, like Starman, that we're talking about tonight, like, dude, this guy makes great movies. Like but he had to wait like, like 25 so incredibly years. rewatchable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for some of them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it took that long took but, decades for people to come around on him though. So I can understand why yeah, yeah. he's, you know, was kind of bitter for a long time. I, I totally get it for me. Like that time frame doesn't make sense. Right. Cause like I've been a fan of his since I first started seeing his movies. Like he's always been a guy who's made, these movies that I love, like I, and it wasn't until I got much older that it registered with me that like I was in the minority. Like there was not a lot of people, you know, not until, you know, like, like you were mentioning earlier, uh, Blake about, you know, the internet and like bringing like-minded folks together, you know, like I just, I just assumed, Oh, I liked it. Everybody must like it. Right. Because I was young and naive and didn't know any better, but 
No, that's not the case. So like, he's always been a, like a, like a directing, you know, genius, a top tier directing, you know, like he's <laughs> always been in my top tier and it just like blows my mind that like the only reason he's in anybody's top tier or it seems is because like of the cult, the cult stuff that's kind of come later on, but man, yeah. like, yeah, it's Saturday night growing. movie sleepovers. I always talked about like, I became in like the late nineties. I, I, he was like one of these filmmakers that even though his name's above the title, you know, and all of his movies, like I, I didn't put two and two together until in the mouth of madness. And then I, cause I just, I saw that movie and it changed my life forever. And it's the reason why the score to death books exist and, and all that. And, uh, but then I started to be like, well, what else did he do? And I was like, right. Oh, like I love all of these movies. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they live was on like every other week. Absolutely. On, on like Fox, Fox 23 in the Albany, New York area. And it was like, and I love that movie. And oh, he made Big Trouble in Little China. I love that movie. And like Christine, oh, like I remember Christine and, you know, Skate from New York was like, oh, he's my favorite director. And I didn't even know it. So <laughs> yeah, by right, like, exactly. Like, by the late 90s, when I was like becoming totally obsessed with him. When I talked to other people who were in the movies and even like John Carpenter was like, nobody, there was no love for the, for the fog at that time. Yep. There was like no right. love for they live. There was like, you couldn't find assault on precinct 13. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I saw assault on precinct 13 when I was like 11 years old at late night on HBO. And I was like, this movie's awesome. But, <laughs> but to your point, Blake, like you're right. Like I loved all these movies. I couldn't have told you that they were all directed by John Carpenter until I got a little bit older. But yeah. like the fact that I had seen all these movies and I loved every single one of them and then found out it was the same guy who made all of them. It just blows my mind that he didn't have like just a major career and following. Cause all of these are like so good. They're yeah. all so good. Yeah. I mean, totally. But like there was, it took, I mean, it you know the fog is what like eighty, yeah, eighty, yep. And yeah, then 80. like so in like eight ninety seven ninety eight, like all the people I know who love movies think the fog is his crappy movie. <laughs> and I mean, and maybe it's not one of his best movies, but like that's like oh no, like that one's bad, like just straight up bad. And it's that like not. and that Lay Live was like, you know, they live I think has had a resurgence for other reasons probably for the same reasons that people thought it was bad in the late nineties, you mm -hmm. know, like it's kitschy, you know, like there's no way around it. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. a particular flavor. Yep. And it took a lot of people to, to come to enjoy that flavor. But oh, you know, now flavor they the... live is probably like one of his most popular movies. Like yeah. you go, do you go see like retrospective screenings of they live and it's a packed house. And and they're all, all the time. It feels like at least here in LA, like there's a, they live screening. It feels like every couple <laughs> of months, you know, and it's yeah. like you said, packed. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's, it's taken forever. And then he became a rock star. And then it was like, it just kind of like, everybody got on the John Carpenter like bandwagon. Like yeah. everybody's yeah. on board now. Like yeah. now, you know, it's just, there's a, 
you know, like my mom knows his name. <laughs> <laughs> Even though my yeah. mom watched those movies with me when I was in high school and stuff, she didn't know who he was. Yeah. And now, like, he's like oh, almost a household name in in the in in, in the certain ways. Yeah, but yeah, like I think he, unf- sadly, I think he does probably look back at his career with not total like pride and you know like being thrilled about the way it happened about how it all went down like i think he's probably proud of for the most part proud of the movies he made but i don't know if those are all movies that like he would have chosen to make if the career went the way he kind of was hoping it had gone yeah because they're all reactions to to the previous film or the couple of previous films so i yeah i just am like in shock like i'm sitting here looking at it and every movie from halloween every like feature movie not like i haven't seen any of the like like i haven't seen elvis and i haven't seen someone's watching me the the tv movies although i hear elvis is pretty good but i haven't seen it yeah. Uh, but like everything from Assault on Precinct 13 through Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I know I was joking about it earlier, but like when I, that movie came out, like I, I didn't know it was Carpenter, but I watched it a bunch and I remember enjoying it a lot. Like every single one of those movies are good. Like there's not a <laughs> bad great, movie. You know? they're, yeah, they're at least good. Yeah. At, at least at a, good. at a minimum. You know, and and OK, I haven't seen Prince of Darkness, but. I'm watching that tonight. Like I've decided <laughs> looking at this, I would say body bags is his first movie where I'm like, uh, I don't know that one. I didn't really, but even like that was much. a TV. That was, those were TV. Yeah. Movies. yeah, that's true. I would say his first not great movie was escape from LA for me. Like that's the first one that he does. And I'm like, mm. and, and you know, what's funny for me that I think that's the movie that really like brought my attention to Carpenter when that came out was when I was like, oh, I've always heard of Escape from New York, but I hadn't seen it. So I saw that. I had already loved the thing in Big Trouble and They Live. And then so I started going through his films again. And then same thing as you guys, like start putting it together. Like, oh, yeah, the same guy made all these movies. I mean, I didn't love Escape from L.A., but <laughs> all the other ones I loved. So uh, put all those pieces together. But he does like he is proud of Starman. That's, you know, that's one of the ones that he has come back to that he is proud of that one. And he's, you know, and he should it, be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, yes. um, that's what it, I'm saying. He should be proud of all of them, though. Yeah. They're all good. He probably is. He's, he didn't set out to make bad movies, right? <laughs> yeah. Nobody does that. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, like I said, I think he, I think he's proud of the movies he made. I think he likely holds some resentment for the fact that people love him now and they didn't love him then and yeah. that his career could have been different had that happened but he does yeah. get a chance to make like a like a fairly big budget you know studio picture that's you know not a horror movie mm-hmm. um with a fantastic cast yeah and a, and a and a solid script and he delivers like a really great movie with starman um now i about the cast now like, Jeff Bridges is such a fantastic performance here and is so he's so immersed in it and what what he's able to do and take like, you know, I I don't know if it's true or not, but what I had read was that he he studied birds and used like bird mannerisms in that jerky way that he kind of moves his body and that it's an alien 
trying to learn human mannerisms and they're not going to have it down right in the beginning. But then by the end, it's a little smoother, not totally. But um, I wonder what would have what would this movie have been like if Kurt Russell had played Starman? <laughs> and if Kurt Russell had played, uh, you know, the Roddy Piper role in They Live, I was always curious, like, why did Kurt Russell not do They Live? It feels like a perfect movie for him. But this one, too, I mean, he would have been obviously had more on his plate as far as, you know, acting, pure acting goes. But uh, I don't know. What is there a reason why did Kurt, were they just doing different things at the time? I, I don't know. I have heard rumor that Carpenter actually wanted Jeff Bridges to play McCready in the thing. Oh, oh. now that um, I can see too. No offense, Kurt. Yeah. But. And I don't know why that didn't happen, but uh, he ended up going back to tried and true Kurt. I think Kurt Russell didn't do They Live if he was offered it at all, or even if it was a thought to put Kurt Russell in it. Uh, I don't think he would have done it because, like, by then he was like a kind of bona fide like movie star. Yeah, yeah like, he did Overboard and what Tequila Sunrise yeah. was that year, and it was on his way to Tango and Cash. So yeah, like he was on his way to being like a a big movie star at some point, you know. Like, um, and I just don't know if the budget was there for that movie. Yeah, and true. Um, why not Starman? I don't know if he was ever in the running for Starman. The, 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 as a studio picture, they probably were pretty insistent that they, they needed somebody who was kind of at that point a bigger stature yeah. than Jeff Bridges. There is uh, the word was that they wanted Tom Cruise, which would have like he would have been really young. Really young. Yeah, really that's, young. It's, when, did not... Legend, when did Legend come out? And that that's the only around. reason why he didn't do it. Like Carpenter says he was fine with putting tom cruise in it he met with tom cruise to talk about it he liked tom cruise he thought tom cruise would have been fine but he was already contractually obligated to do legend which i think comes out in 85 but yeah mm-hmm. legend goes so over budget and over schedule that they would have had to have postponed production like a year to use tom mm-hmm. cruise in starman so that's wow. that's the reason why tom cruise is not in starman and i have nothing against tom cruise i like Tom Cruise movies just fine, but I don't uh, see Tom Cruise. I, it's hard to imagine Tom Cruise well, as Starman. Well, yeah, I think what helps make this work is that Jeff Bridges is kind of like a an average Joe kind of everyman kind of look. I don't know. I don't get that vibe from from Tom Cruise. You know, yeah, like, and also Tom Cruise is coming off of like all the right moves. And, yeah, and risky business. And risky yeah. business. Like, yeah. Like, even if you cast someone younger than Karen Allen, like, it changes the whole mm-hmm. dynamic of the movie. I mean, clearly, Absolutely. Karen Allen is not, like, a, an older actress in this. But, like, where she is at when we when we come into this story, like, where she's at as a character in this movie is not someplace that, that like, a 20-year-old right woman or a 20 year old 21 year old woman is that it's like someone who has lived and had has had this horrible thing happen to her yeah this this great loss that you don't which happens to people yes like who are who are younger than she is here but i think in terms of like storytelling in a movie like it it would have been very hard to tell this story that they tell it here 
with a younger cast than they yeah, have. It's you need more that believable time. with a 30 something actress yeah. than a 20 something. Exactly. Actress, right? Like, or even like 29 or 30. Sure, like sure. You, you need yeah. that runway of like, these two characters have had a relationship and they're embedded in each other's lives and they've done things and spent a lot of time together and they're really intertwined so that when Scott is torn away, how devastated and lost that she is. And we get all of that from that opening scene with her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a friend. I mean, you kind of, I think you already kind of said it, but I mean, that opening scene is, and it's, it's tough because it's like, it's not really the opening scene of the movie, but it right. is. Well, first we get the opening. It sets everything up really. First we have to have the opening of the thing. And then, <laughs> and then we get yeah, yeah. We have to have the thing opening. opening, but it's like we, the movie starts with her face watching these movies and then it ends with her face like yeah. after this whole thing has happened but mm -hmm. like we don't need to know what's brilliant about it is it's like some movies just hold your hand a little more than others and Carpenter is a filmmaker that can trust that the audience will understand what's happening from right. like two, the first two shots that we see of her yeah that like we understand <laughs> like yeah. we, we learn later that he died in an accident but like and we even it's like more cemented just later in that scene but you know instantly what what's going on yep and who, where she's at who she is and like where she is emotionally and and kind of what's happened yeah, we don't need flashbacks like, and we don't need all of that. We see one scene of the real Scott and it's on that film <laughs> with his patented red plaid shirt. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and she's living in the past. She's yeah. like, she's trapped in the past. And it's like another, you know, it's, and it's not a videotape. It's, it's, it's a film, yeah. you yeah. know, like Carpenter for Carpenter. Like, like that's what, memories are it's yeah. uh it's an old crappy uh, <laughs> i mean that's what memories that's what memories were at, in 84 right like i mean I, I remember i remember us looking at old family reels that same way when i was a kid growing up you know it wasn't it wasn't until probably 85 that we got our first like vhsc camcorder and started yeah, you know yeah. recording everything yeah, making <laughs> yeah. making home like we 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 made a, a a home movie called The Color Monster. I'm sure everybody had their own version of The Color Monster where they made a scary movie of some sort. That was ours. <laughs> Shout out to my brother who was The Color Monster. <laughs> nice. But uh this opening, you know, like I mentioned before, like I think all of us can identify with that, you know, I think we all experience grief at some point in our lives, whether as a kid or as an adult or someone in our family has passed away at some point. And so we know what that, you know, what loss feels like. And that's, you know, that's what's really at the core of this movie. And that now she's got a second chance to really deal with that and address that grief and process it. And, you know, in in reality we don't really get that chance but uh but here she does and and it's it's so it makes sense to me like when he shows up the alien the blue light comes in and the one 
thing that I, I probably the one thing that didn't age well in that movie is that when when the light is looking at the picture album and you see Jeff Bridges kind of pop up out of the picture and do this you don't, rotation. You don't, so just, you don't like you don't like the bioscan effect. <laughs> it's like the smile. He's got like a smirk on his face. It was the one thing I was like, eh, I would have done that differently. But um, for me, it's technology. the sound. Of, it's the sound effect of when like the balls come off the floor into his hand. Like that's yeah. It's like it's like super cheese, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like fake computerized sound. Yeah. <laughs> so when it takes, you know, it takes the form of of Scott that, you know, she's shocked, but then of course, like she's automatically gonna sort of let her guard down and and give give this you know being an an opportunity, right? As if it, if it came and like stayed in its alien form, obviously she's just going to run away screaming. Yeah, well, he even says it later after she explains what like a little bit jumpy yeah. is. Yeah, he says like I he basically tells her like I I took this form so that you wouldn't be a little bit jumpy. Yeah, like he, yeah. yeah, he knew well enough that he had to come as to something she recognized, or she right. wouldn't have helped him. Yeah. I mean, she still lost her shit at first, right? right? I mean, of course, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the two of them, their chemistry is so strong, and they work so well together that through the whole, you know, their whole road trip journey, because he's got to get to, he has to get to a point in Arizona, right, Meteor Crater. Mm -hmm. That been there. there Me too. Me too. Yep. Got pictures. Took yeah. pictures. Not I haven't been to the bottom. Not where you they can't, were. I don't think you can go to the bottom. I don't think so either. Yeah. But they did. Yeah. Well, it was 1980, 84. So yeah. things, things were different. By an alien ship. Last that was the last trip down to the bottom. Yeah. But he's got to get there within was it three days? Yeah. Or he'll yeah. like his physical body is just gonna start dying. Yeah. It's got dark man syndrome. <laughs> dark man <laughs> that's right the flesh is not going to survive yeah. <laughs> um so yeah same but there... tick, same ticking clock as et i'm just putting it out there yeah 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 no there are definitely similarities between the stories oh, i got a list of them I'm just saying <laughs> well like three days is also you know as most a lot of these kind of alien science fiction uh, movies are like you know three days has to plays into you know Christ's resurrection and right and all that too. Like three days, mm-hmm. three three days is a is a popular number. It's a popular <laughs> number. More <laughs> more more JC movies. more JC references here. That's right. So we the Jesus Christ cinematic universe. <laughs> um. Yeah. So he, but I totally bought their relation, the journey of their relationship as as we're along with the for the ride with them over these three days that that the chemistry between the two of them and the the arc that it takes that you know she the scene with the deer and and where she just kind of oversees him as he resurrects this deer that he's not a violent you know he's holding the gun for the first part of their road trip so she's still considering him a threat obviously the whole thing is scary but um you know, he's literally pointing a gun in her face for a second. And, uh, you know, but by that point later on at the restaurant that, you know, she, the way she sees him revive this 
deer and let it run off uh, to live again. I think that's the moment that really wins her over because that's also where she's about to split and run right. off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a change in her understanding of what his like intentions and what he's about are at that moment. Yeah. She's at least willing to like, at that point, at least willing to see it through, right. See mm -hmm. these, like, I don't know, you know what it's going to be like when we get to Arizona, but I'll go with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely it's, it's the resurrection of the deer, but then it's also the fact that he gets the crap kicked out of him, you know, is the other yeah. thing that I think mm -hmm. keep, makes her stay. But yeah, I mean, definitely the resurrection of the deer is, you're right. Absolutely. It's kind of where she sees like, oh, okay. Like he's like, it's, it's definitely safe. And that yeah. like, he's so far beyond like hurting somebody that he's resurrecting things that have right. had been right. hurt by yeah. somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't even understand like the purpose of the hunt and the hunter and, and all of that. Like yeah. he's, he's just, you know, he's, that's just not part of his makeup. Obviously not where that, where, where he's coming from, this isn't something that happens. Yeah. Well, and he, ha and he hasn't hurt her, right? He hasn't hurt her. And he, he's bringing this thing back to life. His fascination, the little details of his fascination with food and like how in love with food he is. <laughs> it's like all that wins her over again. And the fact that he looks, he's the, the image of, of her love. What's the matter? Dr. Apple Pie. Good. He's terrific. And I think that too, when he's getting beat up by the legendary Ted White, um, that, uh, you know, I don't think she could tolerate the sight of that without doing something about it, right? I think that's, yeah. you know, a little, all things that factor in. I will say another actor that I have always loved that's in this movie is Richard Jekyll. I've loved that guy since Who's the that? dirty... He's the uh, George Fox, the uh, the government, you know, the government guy who's uh, uh, hunt, trying to hunt them down. But I loved him in The Dirty Dozen, and he was in so many Westerns in the 70s, and he's a, a great character actor that's in a million movies. Um, although I don't think, I guess I probably had seen him as a villain before, but uh, I, I always liked him. So I was like, oh, Richard Jekyll's in this. Okay, great. I'm, I'm even Ooh. more on board now. We also um, get a couple of uh, Dirk Blocker, who plays one of the policemen that uh, mm -hmm. follows them to the motel. He's in Prince of Darkness, so he becomes kind of a little bit of the John Carpenter repertoire company for right. a short time. And, and of course, the great Buck Flower, who I think is like in every John Carpenter movie after this one. Is it? It's yeah, like it, it starts with it. it starts with this one, right? Because he's so obvious in all the other ones. He's got his beard, but here he's clean shaven, a little hard to spot, but he's the he's uh he's giving um Starman a ride at one point. Yeah. Right. Well an MC Ganey, he's recognizable. Yeah, he's he's the Some other things. cop. He's the yep. other cop that uh that yeah, I think he's the one that shoots Jenny. Jenny That's Hayden. right. I mean, you have to say the full name. <laughs> Jenny Hayden, yeah. <laughs> full full name only. <laughs> if only I could do that voice too. But <laughs> well and and the uh Martin Charles Martin Smith, who Yes. 
from from Untouchables and American, yeah, from uh, American, American Graffiti. Graffiti. And, yep, he's a, another actor who was kind of all over the seventies and eighties, and then I think then became a uh, a director. To yeah. uh, to just pedal backwards just for a second because we we were talking about we kind of got on this this avenue of of talking about the actors and stuff and go because we started talking about you were talking about Jeff Bridges' performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was always kind of like legendary. And Carpenter, he kind of says it in the like the featurette for the Blu-ray, although he doesn't include himself in this. But it was always kind of notorious that because they shot the movie out of order, that like everybody on the crew, and at, it used to be the story used to be Carpenter as well, but I can see maybe it's not like really thought this movie was going to suck. Like really thought bridges. <laughs> His acting was just like, what? It's just like it's so extreme. Like, yeah. They didn't know like what he was doing. And because they shot it out of order, like one day he's doing, he's acting this way. And like another day he's acting this way. And like, like they didn't see like any kind of like continuity. Like it was like, people were like behind the scenes, like, like laughing at him <laughs> with his performance. Hell? And I had always heard that Carpenter was also pretty worried. But when you hear the way it's talked now, talked about now, like it seems like Carpenter and Jeff Bridges did work pretty closely with how the performance, like what he was going to do. So I can kind of believe that Carpenter was kind of just like trusted Bridges and knew what he was going for. But yeah, apparently the crew was just like, what is he doing? And then once. <laughs> kind of like the movie was edited together. Like they kind of realized that like he had planned it out even though like, yeah, like it's, it's a subtle difference when you see it like all like laid out, but it really is like a big change at the end of the day. Like the way he, he, he does it. And like, he just kind of, he mapped it out scene by scene, like everything that he was going to do, even when they shot the home video footage, like, he's the one that made the faces like he knew that these are the things i want to mimic like it was like carpenter wasn't like did they shoot that first yeah they shot it It had a couple of couple of weeks before yeah they shot anything else and uh, they had apparently done like two and a half weeks of rehearsal with him and karen allen the first big chunk of it was primarily them figuring out like what jenny and scott's relationship was Mm -hmm. And then kind of then they went on to figure out what like her and the star man's relationship was. And um, like you had said, Jeff Bridges, one, he had kind of thought about it like a, a like a child. Um, the bird thing is, I think, really clear once you kind of hear. That he's kind of like the way he moves is very bird-like. Yeah. He also said he had a friend. He said when he makes movies, he like opens up his 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 like phone book back then, and looks at the people he knows, and he tries to think. In this case, like who do I know who I wouldn't be surprised if I found out they were an alien? <laughs> <laughs> and it was this guy who was a dancer, and he's huh. like, oh yeah, like. So he called that guy up and met with him and it was a friend of his and apparently they worked on a bunch of stuff together on the movement and he would make videotapes of all these ideas and send them to Carpenter and Carpenter would say, I like that. 
I don't like that. And so they kind of worked through it that way, which was like, like Bridges kind of did it on his own, but was like getting Carpenter's feedback the whole time. And um, Carpenter always said like how he kind of figured out the bird thing was on the script that Bridges had on set. He had a, like this, he had drawn this big picture of a bird on like the title page and Carpenter's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, like that's, <laughs> that's what he's doing. Sure. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if you didn't say it already, which I think you did like, like, Unfortunately, like the person who doesn't get the credit for the performance in this movie is Karen Allen. Yeah, right. Who's amazing. Yeah. You know, she's great. She's so incredible. I and I I don't know all of Karen Allen's films, but of the ones I've seen, like this is her masterpiece. Like she's I mean, she's so good. She keeps so the powerful, whole thing yeah. grounded. Yep. You know, like without yeah. her, like it's who we relate to as an audience member, right? Like going through this experience, like we're experiencing it from like the human perspective and like she, her performance is like the thing that we grasp onto throughout this journey. And yeah, yeah it's, she's phenomenal. And everybody, you know, everybody knows her from Raiders of the Lost Ark sure. and which is also a great performance, but a very different kind of movie and much more, you know, she can be much louder and much more um, just a bigger performance. Right. Uh, but what else it's like there's animal house where she's a side character really bruising and mm -hmm. cruising yeah <laughs> yeah yeah Jackie, yeah which um, is you know i think in the same universe as this movie this yeah, is, yeah 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 both both this is after her character in cruising leaves al pacino's character <laughs> this is a sequel to cruising that's yeah right. exactly that's, <laughs> exactly. What, that's what i'm saying yeah well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, uh, it's like we're seeing we're seeing human humanity and Earth through his eyes. But we're seeing the story through her, like, but, but she's our conduit into the story mm -hmm. at the same yeah. time. Yeah. It's really kind of like a brilliant juxtaposition in terms of just like storytelling, you know, uh, in that way. Um. And he gives her like all the credit. He's like, you know, I, I'm only, you know, like I, you know, she, she has to act against this and I can only react to what she's doing. So, yeah. you know, he gives her, you know, a lot of the credit for her, for his, the success of his performance. Um, also, the thing I didn't really think about till right now is like knowing if people haven't watched the movie yet spoiler alert that you know she's impregnated by the end of the movie and like the way she handles him a lot in the early is like is kind of very maternal yeah in true a lot of yep. ways. yeah she's taking care of him and yeah teaching him and explaining things to him like he's a child because he is a child in, in that sense right yeah and i think you really do buy the fact that she's fallen back in love with him by the end that they've gone through that journey together. Right. And, and that, you know, she is like, cause at first when they're in the hotel and she starts to automatically like undress in front of him, she stops herself. And it's not too much later in the movie where, you know, she's, she accepts it and, and has fallen in love with this version of, I guess this version of Scott. I mean, it's not yeah. really Scott, but 
it sort of is in a way, but um, you know, this, this star man is like a beautiful being, a beautiful creature who cares about, you know, life and, and um, you know, people and that, that they've fallen in love with each other. And I don't know, I think that it's so all along the way, I think Carpenter, the way he handles it and it's not so over the top and, like a lot of his films, he keeps it very simple and straightforward that there's a lot of many, many other directors would add in, you know, I need more of this and I need more of this. And we've got to, you know, do something exciting here in the middle. It's like, nope, it's, it's just a straightforward story for them. And it, it just feels like the, just the best combination between Carpenter, Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Yeah. Well, he shoots it. You know, it's other than maybe Prince of Darkness, which you guys will eventually see. It's like his least Carpenter looking movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's partially because like the way he shoots it is. You know, there's a lot more. There are more close ups than probably any other movie. Mm -hmm. And it's because like he knows. That this movie, it's make or break with their performances. Yeah, well, it's super he, intimate, right? And like, he has, and he has the trust that they. So it's like it's all about what's going on, in their faces mm -hmm. and their eyes. And yeah. So in that sense, like, it is simple. Like it's probably, you know, it's a it's a simple story in a lot of ways, and so he approaches it and just lets the story do what it needs and should do in, in that way. And, and that's and you're that's right. why it's we intimate. love Carpenter. It's not just in, it's not it's it's intimate in that most of it's in a car, <laughs> a small intimate <laughs> space, but it's yeah. also obviously intimate because it's this relationship. Yeah. In terms of what you were saying before, I've always been fascinated, and you start to see it more as you get older, obviously, or at least recognize it more. I think it's like these. There's these little relationships that you have that just like only last for as long as they're going to last. It could be like sitting on the phone with like a tech person sure. trying to help you fix your computer and you're sitting on the phone with them for like two hours. And at the end you're like, Hey, we'll see you later, dude. <laughs> and like, and it's over. Or like I was on jury duty for like four days and yeah. then you develop like a relationship like this weirdly intimate relationship with yeah. this group of people. And then it's over and you never see them again. Yeah. And so in that, so in that way, like I feel like, even even if he didn't look like Scott, like there's a it's it's believable to me that like people could fall in love in three days, given like the circumstances, the close quarters, and the fact that he is kind of like this weird resurrection right of her dead husband, just like seals the deal for me you know like yes it yeah. was believable like i totally yeah. bought it yeah going back to the uh the score i which i was shocked by the way to not see john carpenter's name on that you know on that credit that uh i just assumed and it does there's there is a little bit of the carpenter touch in that music but um it's a brilliant score i mean you're you're the score expert how do you feel about it? Yeah, well, it is kind of funny that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Morricone delivers a Carpenter score. Right. Uh, at least the theme. Yeah. 
for the, sure the main theme and yeah. then this one i mean it it feels like a carpenter score in that it's some it's you know synthetic using the equipment of the time and, and the repetition a, of this, the theme that it's in a carpenter movie yeah when i interviewed um disaster piece about the score for it follows um i had gone back and i had listened to the score and when that movie came out everybody was talking about how that score was so carpenter-esque but when you really listen to that score it's kind of not i mean it is but it's really not as much as everybody was kind of making it out to be but what i kind of discovered and i talked to him about was i think what people why people think it's so Carpenter-esque is because of the way it's used. It's mm. not so it, – yes, it sounds like Carpenter because it's a synthesizer, but really the sounds don't sound like him. Mm. The score itself doesn't sound like him. But the way the filmmakers use that music was very Carpenter-esque. And I feel like it's the least Carpenter movie, the way we think about Carpenter movies. But just by way of him placing the music where he wants it. I think makes it work in a carpenter-esque way. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's just, it's a synth score using the same kind of equipment that him and Howarth were using for his other scores at that time. Um, I forget his wife's name, but Jack Nietzsche samples his wife's voice, who was a singer Mm. um, and plays it on the keyboard. And that's what we hear there. Yeah. but Nietzsche was always kind of like this, like wacky film, like wacky composer. He did some other Jeff Bridges movie, coincidentally. I can't think of the title of it now, but he composed it using like, you know, like wine glasses full of liquid and like, wow. you know, like rubbing, <laughs> oh, wow. like crystal glasses, just like yeah. rubbing um, the brim. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it is very Carpenter-esque, but in a lot of ways, it totally isn't. Um, it's There's nothing, I'm not saying anything profound about it, but uh, it works. And that's, Yeah, it's very powerful. I mean, especially the end. I mean, it's it, it, like it totally had me, <laughs> you know, I was I was feeling all the feelings there at, the, at that final scene. But yeah. I mean, totally- maybe... Maybe a little bit over because he uses that theme yeah. throughout mm-hmm. the movie. Maybe just a little bit too much, but um, in hindsight, but uh, still really powerful. What I feel about Carpenter's movies, um, back when he was like a teenager, uh, what's his name? Who's the Schrader? Paul Schrader wrote a oh, book yeah. about transcendental cinema when he was like a like nineteen or something. <laughs> And he talks about transcendental cinema about like there's three stages of a transcendental film. And the last stage is like um, stasis. And I've always felt like horror movies in general, but like Carpenter's movies, they kind of fall into like that structure. And like, I always feel like the credits of a Carpenter movie are like the stasis where everything's happened. And you have to like, as an audience member, you sit there with it. He compressed a little. When I watched it, this Starman this time, I was like totally gonna like flip over the commentary during the credits to hear what they like them wrap up. But like with the music and the comp the carpenter font, like yeah, I just had to like sit there 
and be in that stasis at yeah. the end of this movie coming off of that yeah. shot of Karen Allen and just like sit with it until until the credits were done. Yeah. Like a lot like I was saying earlier, a lot of his film or almost all of them have that really powerful final moment. And in a way, this is it's done differently, but it's just as powerful in a in a very, you know, much more emotional way than some of his other movies. But same thing. I just sat there and just like felt the feelings and let the entire credits run through with that score playing. When I saw it at the retrospective films, like the theater screening, like I, I was like, a, I was a mess. Like I just, I cried when he gives the speech about like what he likes about humans. I cried mm. at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I just like, it's just on the, on the big screen with like an audience, like it's just like every bit of it just like worked. It just like yeah, he yeah. was playing me like a fiddle that John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. And that in that instance. Like I was just like I was totally just like into it. And it just all hit me the way like I would assume he wanted it to. And and I love how, you know, it is it is that bittersweet ending. I was very worried watching it, you know, really for the first time that you know and it's not very carpenter to do this, but like was he going to get on his because it's his planet it's his whole planet that comes down and scoops him up right like that's not I don't something think like so. it's, un- it's, it's unclear okay. it's unclear i think it's just a big sphere like yeah. the, like the ones he holds in his okay hand. got it and what okay. we're seeing is the reflection of, of the crater, of the crater. And, yeah and yeah. the sky Got it. In the in like what we what I would assume is like this metallic sphere or yeah. or some other, you know, non Earth uh, element. But I was I was a bit worried. I'm like, are they going to kill him? Like right as he's getting away? Like so many other you know Hollywood movies would do. And <laughs> thank God, no, we got. The, well, you uh, know, she gets scooped up into a lab at the end of this movie. Oh yeah, she's yeah, done. She's done. She, <laughs> she doesn't keep that baby. That thing yeah. is ripped out of her stomach. <laughs> Well, there was a TV this series. Got, um, this got dark. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, just a beautiful ending for a beautiful movie. Um, should we uh, let's let's talk a little box office and see how it did uh, at the uh, financially with a little box office glory. Nice. Starman is released on December 14th, 1984. It had a $24 million budget, which feels huge. Yeah, was that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess you do have, you know, you have some special effects with ILM and and uh, Stan Winston does some work here. And so. Yeah, you get Dick Smith, Stan Winston, and Rick Baker do that. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like the dream team of special effects. Do really that, is. Transformation. For um, I don't know about now because they've now moved, but in Queens there was the Museum of the Moving Image, and and they had on display one of the times when I went there, like the different heads of the transformation. Oh, really? that's cool! Oh wow, wow. they were like on display, and I was like, huh, that's random, like wow. like Starman, <laughs> yeah, very random, <laughs> Starman, but pretty heads. awesome, <laughs> awesome, but. Random. random like that's the on display. I, I love that they had to fill up shelf space for 40 years like you know like yeah like, all right well finally we'll put it in the museum like, or you know put it the uh they were saying on the commentary too uh with with carpenter and jeff bridges that 
the they had made like a like a full size penis on that on that um, you know animatronic, and that's why the leg is up. You know, he's when it's laying there, the, his like leg is up, blocking his blocking the genitals. Yes, block. <laughs> and they were like, "Why did you make that? Like, we can't see that. I, I don't know. It's funny, <laughs> but we. It's can. also funny because it would have. Yeah, I just imagine like because that. that that figure that grows where the legs up, it like starts as a, as a child. Yeah. And then, yeah. so it's like, is it like, a, is it like a man sized genitals? We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. But someone had to spend three days sculpting it and yeah. making sure it matched the yeah. skin tone. And... and then it grew as the, yeah. as the, as the body grew. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> okay. So it debuts at uh, number six that week. Against mm. uh, other new films that week were Dune, The Cotton Club, and the Tom Selleck classic Tom Selleck. Runaway. Runaway. With yeah. the, with the uh, mechanical spiders at the end? With the yes. little mechanical spiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frightening movie to me. Gene Simmons in that movie? Didn't... Oh, yeah. Gene Simmons is the villain. I think we talked about doing... Uh, we we got to put that one on the list. Runaway. It's we'll we'll co- hit Runaway it's come at up. some point. It's yeah. come up on the show, yeah. It's an important yeah. film. Uh, and it lands, you know, right between Cotton Club and Runaway. Uh, it had a two point eight million dollar opening weekend for a total domestic run of twenty eight point seven. So, made a little bit of money there. You know, not a huge hit, but it didn't didn't lose money. Um, that would have run right through the like until like May or June. <laughs> like that would have run the entirety of yeah the 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 winter and uh, spring. Yeah. Well, it, it was it was fairly consistent because I think for a few weeks it stays at that six or seven spot. So at least oh, it didn't okay. really it didn't really dip for a while. But um, but it was up against you know Beverly Hills Cop, Dune, and City Heat were the top three that opening weekend, and uh, it ends up at number twenty nine of nineteen eighty four between The Gods Must Be Crazy and Cannonball Run two. But um, you know it's it's a tough Brent, like you mentioned that that's a tough field. In 1984, Temple of Doom. A lot of competition. A lot yep. of competition. Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop, Temple of Doom all topped out 1984. Oh, so, wow. yeah, did did okay. You know, I, I think he seemed moderately happy with it. I'm sure you would have loved it to have done better, but um, you know, it didn't. It didn't continue a downward trend for him. So at least it it did what he wanted. And it stabilized him. Um, they've talked about, so there was a, there was a one season Starman TV series, which I was unaware of in all, in all my eighties TV knowledge, I missed the Starman show. Auto man. I I remember it, but I remember it, but I don't think I watched it. I remember it as well. I always got it, it. It's linked very closely with, was it sidekick? So there was a movie with like a kid. Karate like Kid, martial arts, yes, yeah. sidekick, yeah, <laughs> Chuck, with Chuck Norris. With Chuck Norris. Yeah. No, not that. That's a movie. Nope. There was a television. Series. Oh, it was a yeah, 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 like eighty six or eighty seven was Sidekick. Yep, I had a couple episodes on VHS. But uh, if anybody wants to watch the series, it's currently on Crackle. Oh, it is Starman the series. Starman the series. Um, and uh, it, it's about uh, the son is a teenager, and uh, and I'm assuming that uh scott it's scott as a teen scott is the son right scott scott jr as as the son but 
Yeah, he's not so, like the. I can't forget. The, I can't remember the guy's name. It's late here in New York. Ro- right? Robert Hayes, right? Is Robert the actor Hayes. In it? Yeah, like he's not just he's not Scott in it. Like the alien comes down and takes the form of another dead. Yeah, this journalist who died yeah. in a helicopter accident. Um, at the time that the the alien comes down to Earth, so he takes his his form. Um. And Jenny Hayden's not in the show. It's just about. No, I, th- young- I want to say she's dead. I in the uh, show? I looked into it, and I think she shows up in like the last episode. They find her, and she's she's like gone off the off the radar, but she is alive. He's like at some like prep school sleep, like you know, like he's yeah. off at school. Um, and uh, I'm sure I don't know the wacky adventures they get into, but I'm sure they're wacky. I'm sure they are. They ha- it had to be. But sounds like Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen have talked about wanting to do a Starman two. It sounds like Carpenter's very fascinated, but also wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> Happy to get a paycheck if possible. Yeah, yeah. But doesn't it, want to work on it. They talk about it on the commentary on the on the Blu-ray and and well, there was- <laughs> Carpenter was just like. Like, oh, that sounds great. Let me know what happens with it. <laughs> like, so there was gonna be a there was gonna be a remake for a while. They were working yeah. on a remake uh, uh, that got reported in the Hollywood Reporter like way back in 2016. But um, with John like, Goodman and uh, no. Leah no. Remini. <laughs> nope, not at all. But it would, uh, it would be it would be interesting though. Yeah, <laughs> would be interesting to see. Maybe it's a little too late now, but it would have been interesting to see a Starman too, and like, you know, with with the Starman coming back, and I don't know, would, is there more story there? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's about the son. He's supposed to right. grow up to be this big teacher, and yeah, um, and now he'd be like, you know, thirty five or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't I'm no mathematician, but uh, <laughs> if the Ghostbusters can come back, you know. Let's get Starman back. How did how did David Bowie's Starman not make it into the soundtrack of this movie? <laughs> by the way, that was like ten years prior, I think. Yeah, I mean, they were able to get a Rolling Stones song. Which I can't yep. imagine was any yeah. harder than getting a yeah, or any easier than getting a uh, David Bowie song. I feel like you can get Bowie in '84 without too much of an issue. Oh well, yep. He's too but, busy uh, doing Labyrinth. Just to just to wrap it up, uh, I just I don't know. I think this is this is really skyrocketed on my John Carpenter list. So oh, I, no. I, I I'd say it's in my top five now. Agreed. Yeah. Wonderful. I, I have to, I need a little more time to like lay out exactly. I mean, the thing's still number one for me, but Starman's probably four or five for sure. Wow. It yeah, is I mean, good. It's one of my favorite move. It's one of my f- favorite John Carpenter movies, and John Carpenter is my favorite filmmaker. So, it uh, it definitely ranks pretty high for me too. It uh, it works. Yeah, and I think on a rewatch too. Like I watched it twice, not in a row, but in back to back days, and uh, I felt even more invested in it the second time. So I feel like it's a movie that's got a shelf life for sure. Yeah. It's good. It's rewatchable for sure. I think, Mm -hmm. I think, and I think it still resonates. Like people could, you know, if you've never seen it before, you could watch it. And there's nothing like in this that's egregious that takes you out of it that 
you know, like dates it so much other than the fact that there's, you know, you know, no cell phones and things of that nature, but, uh, it's still a great story, great performances, um, easily digestible, totally worth watching. Yeah. If you like movies like E.T. and The Terminator and The Matrix and Shrek, all of those movies, this is basically, this is right up your alley. So get on board. (laughs) Well, Blake, uh, tell us, tell us what's going on with uh, everything in the world of Scored to Death. What's happening uh, in, in your world? Uh, well, I'm in the middle of making a documentary based on the Score to Death books. For people that don't know, uh, I have two books out, Score to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers and Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, which are in-depth interviews with uh, film music composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre, including John Carpenter, who's in the first book. And I'm in the middle of making a documentary that is going to be not so much a documentary version of the books, but kind of a companion piece that's going to focus more on how music works in horror movies. Um, and uh, so we're in the middle of doing that, uh, shooting that, and uh, working on a, a companion. The, the, the movie is a companion to the books. I'm working on a music album that's a companion to the, to the movie, which uh, is uh, very close to going to the uh, vinyl plant pressers wow uh having not ever done it before there's just like every time i'm about i think i'm done i'm like (laughs) oh i need to fill out this form or like oh the artwork needs to be done this way in this color space and all that stuff so uh in an effort to make sure that i get everything done correctly it's going a little bit slower than i was hoping it would but it's a collection of horror movie theme songs uh covered by an assortment of composers and musicians, um, including Alan Howarth. Doesn't really do a cover, but he takes a uh, an existing track that he did for a, a, a more recent horror movie and kind of does a, a new edit of it for the album. Um, but we have uh, a very interesting collection of themes ranging from uh, Stepfather to to stuff from Day of the Dead. Uh, nice. Uh, uh, Richard Christie, who's a, a drummer, but he also works on the Howard Stern Show. He covered a track from The Fog, a Carpenter track. Um, so uh, uh, doing that, it's doing it for people who gave money to the Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the movie, but um, we're going to have many copies extra that I will figure out a way to make them uh, available probably through Bandcamp um, when it's done. And then like like the Kickstarter account, like, kind of like all the proceeds for that will go into the movie. And uh, I do a podcast on occasion called Score to Death Radio where uh, I do an assortment of things. Sometimes, most of the time, I'm just kind of a DJ and I play uh, film music cues, usually horror, but having now dedicated like a decade of my life to horror film music, the next couple of episodes are actually dedicated to movie theme songs from the seventies and eighties. Oh, Oh, very nice. Some horror, but uh, also some other things, a lot of adult contemporary sounding stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Going to change it up a little. 
some dance music, some, uh, of course, Stan, Stan Bush needs to make a Oh, God, yeah. Um, oh. And uh, that's all scored to death. And uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, Dan and I are occasionally still doing episodes. Um, not as much as we used to, but uh, we're... we're we're working on quarterly. That's that's the yeah. that's the plan. We try nice. to we try to deliver one every quarter, and and each of our respective shows has recently released a uh, a dead heat episode. So for all the dead heat fans, you can check <laughs> yeah. out both of our shows. That's great. <laughs> that's great, man. You got a lot going on, and we're we're always uh, cheering you on for all the all the projects that you have. Uh, yeah, we are going yeah. on. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, we're always honored to have you come on and especially talking about John Carpenter. And um, I think I think he'll be back here sooner rather than later as we're we're heading directly uh, as this drops into our Shocktober programming. So we've got some Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween stuff coming up. Uh, so that'll be fun to get you back for uh, for one of those. So looking forward to that. I'd love to. It's always a good time. Nice. All right. And you can check us out. We're at Recon Cinemation Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And uh, check out our, our back archives at reconcinemation.com. Drop us a, a five-star rating and a review. It always helps the show, and we appreciate it very, very much. Uh, quick thank you to our friends EK Wimmer for the theme music and Curtis Moore for the poster. And uh, we will see you next time for our the beginning of our Shocktober episodes. Perfect. Bye now. Take care. See you.